this morning. Um, James has not been bashful about addressing issues, uh, dealing with issues. Last week, Randy led you in a study of relations within the church. Um, he sort of went right at the uh, cultural expectations of rich people being better than poor people and, and so forth and um, focused on that and, and did that. But, so we're going to begin in verse 14 today. Um, by this time in history, uh, the Judaism uh, had become very works-oriented, very focused on outward performance. Um, even as we look at the Old Testament, we don't see in the Old Testament the same kind of detail about our inner spiritual lives that, that we have in the New Testament, but uh, we obviously see very spiritual people in the Old Testament, so they obviously uh, knew things that we don't fully understand uh, from the vantage point of our study of the Old Testament, but it was necessary there. Um, things that God had intended for good, uh, man, as often happens, had begun to distort it and twist it into something that wasn't good, wasn't proper. They had taken and placed an uh, unusual emphasis on the outward actions of sacrifice, the outward actions of observing the feast times, and weren't necessarily dealing with the things that they ought to be taught, have been taught about God and, and so forth from that. Of course, the Pharisees became at the very top of that list of things that they just had um, taken all of the distortion of the truth that God had intended and really had just fine-tuned it, I guess, in a bad way and made it much uh, further afield, astray, than God ever intended it to be. <clears throat> so as I look at this next section in James chapter 2, and I'm just going to read a the first few verses of the section, but beginning with verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, uh, James is the master illustrator, and he very quickly and carefully illustrates what his point is about the relationship between faith and works. So I think we see here in this early church, we know from the beginning of the book that, it, that James is uh, focusing this book to the Jewish believers, that these Jewish believers, as they come to Christ and as they recognize the what we, they have in Christ, the benefits they have in Christ, even though it's still growing their knowledge and understanding, they, there's sort of a pendulum swing. So they've been sort of all over on this side with a lot of emphasis on their observable actions, what they have been doing with their lives. They're, again, the sacrificial system, the, the feast days and so forth. And all of a sudden, this, this group of believers just sort of swings clear to the other side and says, we're not going to have anything to do with anything that's observable. We don't care whether anybody can see that we're different, see that we're believers or not. We're just going to go the other direction. 
so it's really a, a quite a swing away from what they have been traditionally been used to, and they go and they swing to the other side, to the other direction. And so James, uh, as mentioned just early min, a minute or two ago, is not he's not uh, afraid to is, address issues, and so he comes right at this whole thing uh, with his matters. So I looked at this passage and have been. And since I didn't have to teach last week, I've actually been able to look at this passage for a couple of weeks. And um, it was like, I don't know what to do with this passage exactly. Um, we uh, teaching a group of people that understand that if we're really truly believers, that we will demonstrate certain characteristics so other people can see that we're different. Uh, not that unsaved people can't have some of those characteristics, but we should have them more consistently and it may be more observable. Um, you know, so one of the thing, goals as a teacher is to help people to get more out of a particular passage, more, more understanding, more comprehension out of a particular passage. Uh, the other thing is to maybe create some motivation out of a passage. It was like, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. What am I going to do with this particular passage? So what I thought I would, we would do today together is, is sort of look back and um, just take a sort of an overview of work, the relationship between faith and works from the very beginning and see how it sort of comes together all the way. Now, you know that um, Martin Luther is famous for declaring this book as a, an epistle of straw. I was just talking to Pastor Rodney about it before class started. We were sort of chuckling because we really don't know exactly when Martin Luther made different comments in his, as he progressed through his understanding of the Scripture and, and moving, you know, I mean, obviously he was the one that became the great champion for justification by faith and faith alone. Um, and so I can understand when he comes to this, this particular passage why it was like, whoa, what do I do with this passage if I'm going to put this great emphasis on justification by faith, and here James is introducing this matter to, well, you need works, and faith and alone isn't enough, what am I going to do to deal with that? Um, so we don't know whether Martin Luther wrote that early on exactly, and then maybe as we, time goes on, because we know that also that as he wrote other works that he did, did reference James and some of those other works. So we don't know exactly what the chronology of that is, or the understanding of that, or what exactly was happening in Luther's life when he made the statements about James being basically an epistle of straw, why should it be even included in the canon or whatever. So he's known for something that we don't really have time or have the opportunity to give him a fair review about. We don't really know what he was thinking or what he was saying or what, what prompted him to say what he, what he said. So we're sort of stuck with that, but I think that I feel like as he would have had time to meditate and maybe put the more pieces together that he probably ended up with more of a balanced approach. Now, I'm just being speculating, okay? Um, but in all fairness to him, I think that there's something else to be said or understood here about what he might have thought or did, okay? So just some thoughts about that. So we're going to turn back to Genesis chapter 4, and... John Stone, I'd like you to open up your, have your scripture also open to Hebrews 11, please. And different times, I'll ask you to read some verses out of Hebrews 11, okay? 
So, obviously in Genesis chapter 4, we're right at the very beginning of the existence of man and the very beginning of the relationship between um, man and God. And uh, we have here the first two descendants, the first two children uh, in this passage in Genesis chapter 4. And it reads this way, now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Uh, John, if you read Hebrews 11:4, please. Yep. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and through his faith he was commended as righteous, because God commended him for his offering. And through his faith he still speaks, though he is dead. Okay. So we see the, these two men, men, young men coming, both of them having observable works, both of them doing what they, in their interpretation, thought they were supposed to do. And so they both come. We can talk about the difference between the fact that, uh, that Cain brought the fruit of his labor and that Abel brought the, the blood sacrifice and, and tied that all together with the rest of it. But basically, we see two men doing things for God in their minds and in their hearts, and the great distinction between them was the fact that Abel had faith and, God, and Cain did not. And again, I would remind you that of, again, that I, a statement I've made before that oftentimes when you're reading Hebrews chapter 11 especially, you can substitute within the word faith, you can substitute the word obedience, that those people did something by obedience was, was, which was linked to their faith, their confidence, their trust in God, but which led them to be obedient, to do what God wanted them to do. But right here at the very beginning, we see two things of <coughs> works, <coughs> and we see two responses to that because Abel had, did his in faith, and Cain simply did his with his own self-righteousness or his own efforts. And all I'm doing here is just trying to, again, just show us a lot of different things, ways to look at this, show that there is a sort of a dynamic between our works and our faith from right from the very beginning. This, does, this doesn't crop up just in James or in the lifetime of James. This crops up. This is part of man's existence and part of the relationship between men and God from the very beginning. Then on over to Genesis chapter 15, please. And in this particular case... Uh, We're going to be um, looking also at, at the uh, thoughts about Hebrews chapter 11. But before I read the Genesis 15 passage, just a couple thoughts about it. Um, again, very clearly stated from James that faith without works is dead. James states that very clearly. But also we know that the opposite of that true, that works without faith is also empty or vain or useless. And just remind us that as we conclude from our study in the book of James, as we get back to the text probably maybe next week, is that God's design is that true faith will always be visible or observable in the form of good works. 
And then I'll leave you with a thought question. Well, we won't really discuss it right this very moment, what, but what are good works? What, what is intended with the, with the thought of, of good works? So I had you turn to Genesis 15. I'm going to also uh, read from Ephesians 2 if you want to turn there with me for just a moment. Hold your finger in uh, Genesis 15. We're going to get back there. Okay, you've heard me reference this in other settings, I'm sure. But Ephesians 2, we'll begin with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, or on two good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, I'm not sure exactly when... Uh, in my, in my life that I learned verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, but I do know it was quite a bit later in my life before I really connected verse 10 to verses 8 and 9. I, I mean, uh, so somewhere along the way, uh, I memorized verses 8 and 9, which, which are very important verses and very, very uh, key verses. But I do remember that it was later as an adult, really. I mean, I'd read it, I'm sure, other times, but as an adult that I really came to grips with the fact that it should really be a passage that we learn from verses 8 through 10, and, and verse 10 is uh, the, the final aspect or the final part of this pa package or picture, and that is that for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in this. So, God's intent has always been for good works to be a part of the life of a believer. And, and also, of course, this passage so clearly, again, states the, the relationship between faith and works. And this verse really is, the, this passage is really the passage that probably comes, uh, you know, head on to opposing forces, seemingly two opposing forces coming running from two different directions. One of them saying that, Faith without works is dead, and the other one is saying that we were saved by faith without works, that works had nothing to do with that, and they just sort of come at each other. So if you can keep that in mind and, and sort of stir the, your pot with that, that, that section along the way, we'll go back to Genesis 15. Now, Abram's already left. Uh, there are Chaldees back in the... Uh, chapter 11 and, and specifically in chapter 12 when God calls him and tells him to come out and that he will make of him a great nation. And here in chapter 15, which occurs again in chapter 17 and 22, God restates his covenant with Abram and, and states what his, his intention is for him to be there. And in chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go, go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, indeed one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now, look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him 
for righteousness. And so we see the very focal point here of um, this matter of Abraham believing or trusting, having confidence in the word of God, even though he couldn't see the results of God's promise. He didn't seem to be going anywhere with that, but that God certainly did have a promise for him in that. And then just on over to Genesis 22. And of course, the story here is God having instructed Abraham at this point in time to take his only son Isaac, and uh, son of promise at least, to, and, 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 uh, and sacrifice him. Verse 2 says, Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the, the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. And so this is the setting off to complete this test that God has given Abraham uh, in reference to his son. So he is, in this very passage, obviously making, or maybe that's not the right word to use, but here is this opportunity for Abraham either to obey God and do what God has intended for him to do, <clears throat> or for him to disobey God and, and not trust God and not, not follow through with God's intent for him. But it's been noted, in, in, and I'm sure you've had it, heard it noted other times, but here in in verse 5, at the, toward the end of verse 5, I think is the very first indication of Abraham's faith and trust in God, even though he was so far from being able to realize or see what God's intention or, or plan was. But the very fact that he and Isaac were going to go worship, and then he says that we will come back to you. And so this is very a very um, specific thing in the original text uh, Abraham does speak here in the plural and indicate that his intention was to come back, both he and Isaac, to return. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know where you're at with all that, but to me that's just an amazing um, expression of his trust and confidence in God's promise that he would have an heir and that heir would be of his body and that this young man was, that, in fact, that child of promise. And so here we see this particular act of, of faith. Now, as the story goes on, you're familiar with the story. They go up on the mountain, and um, Isaac allows himself to be bound by his father, uh, placed on an altar, ready to be sacrificed. And in verse 12, and God says to him, and he said, Do not lay your hand on the ladder or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And so in this passage, again, this idea of faith versus works, God's, God's side of the story, man's side of the story, uh, God is the one that provides the ram. Again, did you, would you expect this ram just to randomly be on this mountainside? And of course, the answer is no, that God very carefully and specifically provides this particular uh, offering. Um, I think, John, if you'll read verse 8 and verse 17 of Hebrews 11, please. Uh, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he 
And he went out, not knowing where he was going. In verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. Yeah, go ahead, Cap. Okay. So again, it's just, I mean, Abraham learned more about himself than God did that day. God knew uh, what was happening, but Abraham had to learn this particular lesson. Again, this just this balance between or dynamic between faith in the heart and actions that, that are observable on the outside. Uh, Abel showed his uh, heart by offering the right kind of sacrifice, by offering that sacrifice in faith versus Cain's offering that, uh, that sacrifice. And Abram, or Abraham, as he becomes known, on numerous occasions had to actually show that he was trusting God, that he was believing God. Lizzie's household, his home, everything that he had travels a significant difference, a distance in that particular day um, to show that he was trusting God, that he believed what God was saying to him even to the point of taking his only son and being ready to, to sacrifice him, to plunge that knife into his heart. And so we see here faith being observable, faith being seen as it's worked out. Psalm 15, please. Again, I, um, if you didn't catch what I was trying to say earlier, but just the idea, I know that I'm not saying, teaching you anything or saying anything that you don't already know. But just trying to give us a little bit, you know, different, more passages, maybe more thoughts behind it. Again, maybe someday you'll run into somebody that wants to talk about this, and you can use other passages to uh, talk about what uh, God shows us in James chapter 2. In Psalm 15, um, we start out with a question. Uh, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? What do you hear in that question that is being asked of God? What, what do you hear in that particular question? John? You hear because of what we know about man, because of our iniquity, because of our tendency to go that direction, who actually can stand, because to stand in the presence of God, there better be holiness or there's no chance. Okay. Um, what? Charles? Okay, asking, you know, Lord, you know, the holy hill, the, the, uh, the tabernacle, I think they do speak of the final existence of our lives. Where, where am I going to live the rest of my life? Where am I going to end up being at? Uh, there, it doesn't say the word heaven here, but I think that, I think that the that verse is pretty clear that, that, that he's talking about. How, how in the world do I end up being uh, with you? I want to end up with you. I want to end up in your tabernacle. I want to end up living on your holy hill. Um, now, of course, he, the holy hill is also probably symbolic of Jerusalem at this point in time. The tabernacle may or may not be <coughs> symbolic of the temple, since the temple hasn't been built at this time, but the tabernacle was. But it's interesting, then, the answer to this question. So what did uh, Paul say to the Philippian jailer when, when the Philippian jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay? So, what kind of answer do you expect after verse 1 of Psalm 15? Believe God. Believe in God. Do what Abraham did. Do what Abel did. Be faithful. But the passage says, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. There's not any reference to belief or trust. There's no reference to the sacrificial system. There's no foreshadowing in this particular passage of, of Christ coming. Though in Psalm 22 we have a great detailed foreshadowing of, of Christ's coming and the crucifixion and all that happened to him at that point in time. And my point only is, is that for these Old Testament believers, there was this emphasis on holy living, on a holy life, on observable fruit, observable actions in their lives that was linked to a changed life that came through faith, even though it doesn't talk about faith here. In this passage, is, there's so much in this particular passage he who works up, walks uprightly. It's not somebody that has to sneak around and, and not be seen. Uh, you know, have you ever been at out sort of on a, maybe not in a really good standing with somebody and you see them at a distance and you avoid them? Never happened to any of you, right? Okay. We'll, we'll forget that I asked that question. Um, but, you know, but this person just walks uprightly. He, he's not afraid. He's not skulking around. He's not not trying to hide. He works righteousness. He does things that are right. He speaks the truth in his heart. He's not self-deception. He's not deceiving himself about who he is or what he wants to do in life. He does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. And this next expression is really interesting. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. It's the, the idea is the, the picture is the idea of somebody picking up something from the ground, a stone, a spear, or something like that, and then hurling it at his neighbor, somebody doesn't, isn't going out to deliberately set out to, to do damage to his person, to his friend. In his eyes, a vile person can despise, but he honors those who fear the Lord. And he swears to his own heart and does not change. This has been one of the, um, I'm not sure, I, I it's going to sound wrong if I say it the way, it, it's been one of the guiding principles of my life for many, many years. There's been more than, uh, more than one occasion I've said I would do something and realized it was going to cost me more than I wanted it to cost me. Mostly time or energy, not usually money, but mostly time or energy. And, and God's Word says that I, I have a responsibility to follow through with that and do what, do what I've said that I'll do. But, it, but sometimes uh, saying what you'll do something and then doing it is hard, isn't it? It's sometimes hard to follow through with something like that. But this, but this psalm says that that kind of person that wants to end up living with God is a person that will do that on a, at least on a consistent basis. He doesn't put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe. So this, pas- this passage is all, in, all, the whole emphasis on this passage is on observable works. If you just had this particular passage, just lift it out of, out of the context and just use this passage, it looks like 
the way to end up in heaven is by doing good things, by, doing, by being a good person, by doing the right things. But just a couple other passages, and there's numerous, obviously, in Psalms, and some of you would have other passages other than I'm selecting. But um, as I was re- preparing for this and thinking about this, I mean, so have Psalm 15, you know, how am I going to end up in your heaven? How am I going to end up dwelling with you? You know, by being this kind of a person. And then what about the other side of what the Psalms teaches us? Um, there, is, <clears throat> there is such tremendously rich theology in the, in the Psalms. Uh, it's just incredible what you encounter as reading through the Psalms. And, and if you're looking for exaltation of God, if you're looking at details of even our spiritual lives, but I turned to Psalm 23 in my mind and then turned there in my Bible. But the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this passage is not directly speaking about salvation, but where's the emphasis of the psalmist? Is it on himself? Is it upon what he can do? No. It's all on God, isn't it? All on the Lord. And so Psalm 15 says one thing, Psalm 23 has the other side of that, and so we have to put them together. We have to put the two pieces together. Psalm 32, please. I'm going to read the first four verses, and then verses 8 and 9. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then verses 8 and 9. I, I, God speaking, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle else they will not come near you. And so, the very, especially the first two verses of that section I read is certainly an emphasis on an understanding of this basic need between the sinner and the righteous God of forgiveness and mercy and the things that only God can grant to us and give to us. So we see again this, this other side of what God is doing for us. And then Psalm 51 And again, just the first verses of the, of the psalm for our purposes this morning. Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And so again, just this moving from Psalm 15 through Psalm 23, where the emphasis is upon God, and these two particular two psalms, which are direct, directly address it directly, the whole ideas of our sinfulness, God's righteousness, and the need for God's forgiveness, not something that we achieve, but something that we're granted, something we're given, because the psalmist in both cases, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, is crying out for that. He's asking for that. He hasn't found it. He can't manufacture it on his own. He can only seek it. He can only ask it to come from God. Now, these are just 
isolated passages, uh, not isolated in the sense of been taken out of context, but isolated uh, out of many. Okay, there's just many passages that you could use to go this direction. So this whole matter that James is addressing in James chapter 2 is not something new to his readers. It's not something new that they're not acquainted with, not familiar with. Because even though it may have been very external, uh, everything we understand or know about their situation uh, causes us to believe that these readers were very well versed in the Old Testament. Obviously, that's all they had. But they were very well, very well versed in the Old Testament, probably far more than any of us could hope to be because of the way that it was just, we can use the word drilled, <laughs> ingrained in them. But they knew the Old Testament. They knew the dynamic of the Old Testament between the observable things that they were to do and between that and the need for their faith and their complete dependence upon God for resolution of the of the problems that they found them, find themselves in. Turn now with me, cleared out of the Old Testament, we'll go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. This passage, of course, begins with the matter of not being judgmental, um, and then it continues with that whole contrast of, you know, we see something, little speck in somebody else's life, and we focus on that little speck, and we forget about this huge, big stain in our lives that we're looking past and overlooking. Uh, I know the scripture uses a speck and a, blank, and a plank for those two analogies, but the idea of a, you know, a spot or a, or a huge stain, I think, also captures that whole idea. But here in, um, in Matthew, it's in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad fruit bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. I've never felt like I was very good at this, but uh, this is a passage that tells us the um, importance of discernment. It tells us the fact that we can identify people that are doing works for their own purposes, for their own goods rather than for God's purposes or God's, God's goodness, God's glory. It tells us that, that there is that ability, there is that opportunity. Um, many times probably for us we make sometimes observations or decisions based on too casual of an observation, too casual of an acquaintanceship. But it, so there is this whole matter that good works are not just, um, how can I say it? I, I, um, 
I guess it's just the whole idea of not being fooled, not being uh, led astray by somebody's supposedly uh, good works or good deeds or, or good things that they are offering up to us. And then um, on over to, and finish up with just a couple other verses here. Um, John 15, just the whole idea of the importance of um, bearing fruit, doing what God intended for us to do. Um, John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. For you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, and the branch, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, it goes on, of course, to discuss further in this passage, but just that whole idea that God has intended from the very beginning of the life of a believer to be fruitful. I believe the emphasis on the fruit of John 15 is upon the fruit of the Spirit, personally. I know that's not everybody's view or, or, or situation, but I think that is the primary uh, purpose of that. And then over to Philippians chapter 2. And this is just a sort of a, another a verse that sort of goes into that same importance level of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And the, obviously, I'm sure you caught up caught it, but the section of that that I was that's emphatic in this passage is the working out of your own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, it's not working for your salvation. It is simply displaying your salvation with care, with respect, um, doing it in a way that will bring honor to God. And then if you'll turn with me to Matthew 23 to sort of put the whole maybe things back in a This is Christ's um, instruction, um, correction to the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He was in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
And then there's a whole series, if you would go beginning with verse 13, verse 13, 16, 23, 25, 27, and 29, a whole series of woes. And though it is spelled differently and means something differently, uh, the W-O-E, I'm always sort of, sort of chuckle inside of me when I read them because I think they do have the same significance of uh, the woe that somebody that's been around horses might use to get them to, to quiet or to be still or to stop moving. And I, so I'm often reminded when I'm reading a woe in the scripture that it's something that tells me to stop and pay attention and figure out what in the world's going on around me rather than just keep barreling ahead. Um, so even though they're not the same, just the sound of the words just uh, reminds me of that need just to be so cautious and so careful of whatever that passage is saying to me, and that is following here. So Christ here points out the dangers of an emphasis on good works, puts, points out the dangers of the, how quickly things can be distorted. Now these people, he, he, he t- says they're teaching, from, they're sitting in the seat of Moses and they're teaching, well, when, as long as they're teaching the law and teaching the, the original intention of the law, then, then do what they're telling you. But don't get sucked up into all the things that they've done that are stretching the law or misplacing the law and keeping it in, in perspective. So um, conflict or dynamic between faith and works. Uh, we're not saved by works, but if we have a true faith, it will be observable in what are referred to as good works. I told you I left you with that thought question as to what that is. Um, I will say to you that without getting too bogged down in in the whole discussion, that good works are directly connected with the spiritual gifts that you have that God has given you. So what somebody else may do for a good work may not fit your good work. And what you may think somebody is doing for their own glory, for their own good, if it's linked to and connected to their spiritual gift, then it's not something that's wrong. It's not something that is, is um, improper. But we just have to realize that people will manifest different things in different ways because of the spiritual gifts that God has given them. So we'll get, probably get back to James. Um, I don't know whether this did you any good or not. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed just seeing that dynamic that's always been there between faith and works, uh, the fact that we need both, we, that faith is a gift of God, and that works is the ability that God has given us to do things to bring him honor and glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace and mercy. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.